0: Hi, my name is Byron. The Old Testament reading is found in Deuteronomy 6, 4 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Pip. The New Testament reading is found in First Corinthians fifteen one through seven. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received: that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures Hi, my name is Jared Anders. Please stand for the gospel reading found in Matthew twenty-two, thirty-seven through forty. He replied, "You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your being, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it: you must love your neighbor as you love yourself. All the law and the prophets depend on these two commands. The gospel of the Lord. Good morning, everybody." So this is a Sunday, the first of which, or the first of its kind, where I am responding to some questions that you emailed in. And we're calling today Let's Talk About It, because it's a little softer than Q&A. and a implies that I'm the Bible answer man, and that you have questions, I resolve your questions, and you go happily into lunch. (laughs) I would rather say let's talk about it, because you may go into lunch with some more nuance to these questions, maybe even some more questions than you answered in with. And I say that not because my attempt is to mislead or to confuse or to be obscure, but because what we're dealing with today are things that, as, as some of have, some have um, described it as, uh, things that we hold with an open hand things that we are wrestling with as we stand under the authority of God's Word, as we stand under um, or in the tradition of our confession of faith. And so you'll see, you'll notice the song that Abby and the worship team began with this morning is a song that borrows many of its lyrics from the Nicene Creed. God from God, light from light, this we believe. The Nicene Creed is the core of our faith as Christians, and it cuts across every denominational line. It represents the thing that we hold with a closed hand. And there's a line in the creed that says, he has spoken through the prophets. That's the reason we hold the word of God to be authoritative. And so those are the things that we say, okay, we cling to that with a closed hand. This is the thing that is the core of our faith. And then standing under the authority of scripture, standing in the great the line of this great uh, historic tradition of our faith, we wrestle with some of these other questions with open hands. So I, I set that up for you. Because I want you to know what kind of a Sunday this is. This isn't a walking through the book of the Bible series. This is a Sunday where we, we are going to grapple with some questions. Uh, secondly, I want you to, to know that it's all your fault. <laughs> because you asked these questions. You could have asked me, you know, what I think the Broncos record will be this season. You could, you know, but you did not. So I, will, I want to treat your questions with sufficient seriousness and and handle them. The first one, though, this morning is a a little bit of a a lighter one. I know you're already like, man, what are these questions, you know? But the first one, it was not emailed in, but has come from conversations with several of you, and that is, uh, what are we doing uh, as things grow here downtown? What's the plan? Are we going to two services? So to say it directly, yes, we are going to two services. And we are going to two services. That's great. Okay, great. (laughs) I, 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 you, I'll give you room for applause in a moment. We're going to two services in four weeks, September 21st. Everybody say September 21st. We're going to two services. It'll be a nine o'clock and an 11 o'clock. Now, the question is why? And I want to I tell you this sincerely. I, w- me, along with our staff, we've wrestled with this one for a long time. We began wrestling with this decision, since, honestly, since January of this year because it it feeds none of our egos to say, yeah, yeah, let's go to two services. This is not, we don't need another feather in our cap or another way to, to fill up our week. We are plenty content and we're struggling to keep up to be faithful with things as they are. So we're not looking to say, okay, how can we do, you know. Secondly, We really don't do any marketing. I mean, have you seen our signs and our parking lot situation? In fact, one might argue that we do everything we can to make it hard, to thin the crowd, as someone said to me this morning, you know? I mean, I just became an Anglican priest, for goodness sake, you know? We're talking about homosexuality this morning. I mean, we're we're trying... If ever it should leave people scratching their heads and saying, I'm not coming back to this place, we're trying, you know? We, we're making the, the, the table of the Lord uh, central to our gatherings. We're doing all of these things to make sure that we are being formed properly. We, we don't have dancing clowns and free donuts, you know? Like, so so I, I say this to say, none of us are strategizing ways to, to grow the thing. And let's make it, in fact, growth, church growth is not even a goal. Can I say that? The goal for us is faithfulness to Jesus. It's not church growth. But what happens when Jesus begins welcoming more people, right? And this is why a few weeks ago we, we spoke out of that story in Luke 9 where the disciples and Jesus try to get away. And I think this happens to us. Some of us, it's like, man, I just want to get to that small church where it can just be me and Jesus, and we just want to get away. And then this obnoxious crowd starts following. And the disciples are like, send them away. Don't go to two services. And Jesus says, you give them something to eat. And I, I listen, guys, I, one of the main indicators for, for me, because you're looking around, and you're like, well, there's some empty seats here. It's true. But if you've been back to our children's area, you know we are overflowing in capacity. And when I talk to our children's ministry team and when I listen to them, they are struggling to keep up. And when I've talked to other church planters and other pastors, they'll, they always say the, the children's space will run out of room before the adults run out of room. And so if the Lord is adding young families to our church, it's not a good thing that week after week we say, sorry, we can't take in your kids, right? So, so our children's ministry team, what I'm hearing from them is they're saying, we need more classrooms, and the only way to do that, because we're maxing out pretty much what we can do in one service, is to go to two services, kind of divide that number. So, so that was one of the indicators. But the second thing is this, some of you, and I, I know because before I was in this spot as a... Uh, a lead, in a lead role of a congregation, I used to have all sorts of ideal thoughts. It's like, oh, well, you just decide. When you get to a number, you just multiply, you just plant another thing, and everybody will go there. Except that church isn't like Starbucks. You can't just solve the problem by opening another franchise down the street. In fact, all of, many of you know this, New Life Downtown is itself not a franchise of New Life North. It's a parish. So there's a living, breathing thing that a church is. So we can't just solve another thing. But up at New Life, Maine, they've just started New Life Friday night as a new kind of congregation, a new uh, um, weekend service. So there are different ways that we're opening up spaces. And yet, New Life Friday night began at the beginning of the summer, and yet New Life downtown grew during the summer. Now, what do you do with that? And I think, I think there's, a, there's a moment where you, you come to this place and you say, okay, maybe it's not about other places opening up or other locations. With all humility, if the Spirit of God is doing something in this place, our responsibility humbly is to say, how do we keep up and be as faithful as we can with it, all right? And for us, that response is, for now, we're going to two services. So September 21st, now you can applaud. September 21st, 9 a.m., 11 a.m., we're going to two services. Um, and and that, that's, um, that's question number one. Well, that was supposed to be my warm-up question. Okay. <laughs> Question number two has to do with suffering. (laughs) You're a sick bunch, you are. (laughs) I want to say this. Um, if, If you're here and you are in the midst of suffering, my response today is not aimed as a pastoral response to the person in a situation of suffering. That would be the series that we did during Lent this year on Lament. That was all about giving voice to the pain. and and So I would encourage you to listen to those six weeks about doubt and suffering and pain uh, that we did called Lament. Today, it's going to be a little more idea-heavy because that's how the questions came in. The questions didn't come in as in, I'm in pain, why am I suffering? The questions came in more uh, idea-based. So let me read you a couple of them. Okay. The first one, are we as sons and daughters of a loving God entitled not to endure pain and suffering, discomfort, or is this belief simply a result of our Western culture? It's an Interesting question. A second one related to this, in the story of Job, Satan basically has to ask God's permission to destroy Job's life and take everything valuable to him. If Satan has to ask permission, then is God responsible when bad things happen on this earth? And then James says that every good and perfect thing comes from God, who does not change like shifting shadows. Is the implied negative also true? Is some other force to blame for the evils of the world? I have heard Christian leadership explain trials and grief by saying that God will bring forth something good of it or teach us something from it, but that doesn't explain why. As creator and sustainer, how responsible is God for the goings-on in this world, be it bad or good the place i want to start is by talking about the old testament and the new testament one of the things you'll notice in the scriptures is it is that both scriptures both testaments reveal the same god but they tend to place a different emphasis in their presentation of this god okay so in the old testament you see a heavy emphasis on god's sovereignty overall and so where there's a story of an evil spirit like saul being uh, oppressed by an evil spirit, you see God as being the one who sends the evil spirit. But in the New Testament, you see God perso- it, 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 God uh, in human form as Jesus driving out evil spirits. And so where in the Old Testament tends to stress, look, God is over it all, in the New Testament, there's this stress that but God is opposed to that evil. Now, it's not a different picture of God. It's a different stress. It, it's a little bit, and all metaphors here are going to be um, uh, inadequate, but it's a little bit like a time signature. Any musical people in here? Okay, a three four time signature one, two, three, one, two, three. Come on, one, two, three, one, two. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me, right? But we could do that same song in 4, four one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four. Amazing grace, how... Right? You can do the same song, but in different time signatures, because of a, and it results in a different stress. I think this is a little bit like what's going on in the Old Testament versus the New. It's showing the same God, but it's placing a different stress, a different emphasis. But secondly, we want to get to this question of agency. But who is responsible for this? Ultimately, if we say God is sovereign, then God has some level of agency over the world. Now, primary agency is to say that God specifically commissions and causes everything that's wrong in the world. Secondary agency is to say he gave humans free will and some of those choices resulted in evil. You don't have to go very far in the Bible to see that one of the results of free will is not only rebellion against God, but Cain murdering his brother. And so there, you can say, well, well but God, gave, God allowed that. So there's a secondary agency, yes. But we need not look at everything that is wrong in the world and say, aha, God made this so. Okay? I, want, I think that it's worth being free of that. You are not undermining the sovereignty of God to say that God does not commission evil or sickness or wickedness. In fact, as we see God revealed in the person of Jesus Christ, we see Jesus healing And driving out the evil and ultimately defeating evil on the cross. And so we need not look at a thing and say, oh, I have to call this thing good. I have to give thanks for the sickness. No, 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 you don't. Actually, what the New Testament says is in the midst of all things, we're able to give thanks because this situation is not the whole story. It's not the whole picture. So let's talk specifically about Job because the question related to Job. Isn't it interesting that for all that the reader is told about Job in the first chapter, that Job is never told those things? That for as much as Job is spoken to in the end of the book, not once does God in the story say, Now, Job, let me tell you what happened. See, one day the devil came to me, wanted to test you, accused you of not really serving me uh, for, for good motives. And I, and I said, Okay, why doesn't he do that? Maybe it's because... The, the why question is always the mystery question in this life. That even a, a very neatly constructed story like Job is told, there was once a man, all of these bad things happened to him, there's these long dialogues, it's a wonderfully constructed story, and yet, the, 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 though the narrator is omniscient, the key character who's suffering is not let in on that reason. In other words, the person's suffering is never told why. And I wonder if that's a little bit of a resonance with our experience of suffering. That there is no way this, in this side of the kingdom's arrival, there is no way to say fully, Yahweh, oh, I know why. And so part of the caution of the book of Job is to not be like his friends who are too sure of why. Not to be the person that says, Well, I know why. It's because you're not tithing. It's because you're not giving. It's because you're not... Holies, because you don't pray, it's because you don't have faith. That is the exact thing that the story of Job is meant to unravel and undo, is that sort of thinking. In fact, in, in one way, the, the whole story of Job is a, is a um, challenge to the myth of modernity, the myth of modernity that we should be able to understand everything about this world. So because we can build cell phones that can take pictures and beam up to satellites and send around the world, because we, can, because we can understand how and why everything works, we have this underlying premise that we should be able to know why a good God allows suffering. Charles Taylor, the philosopher who, who um, held the chair of philosophy at Oxford for a long time, said that in a very unintentional way, Christian apologetics created the problem of evil. Because Christian apologetics gave us a God that we thought we could explain and understand. And so then we brought the biggest question we had to that God, that domesticated, tamed God, and said, okay, well, if I can explain everything about this God, if I can prove that he created the world, if I can, then, then, then riddle me this. Why do bad things happen to good people if God is good and powerful? Such a question is only possible because of the premise that we should be able to stand over God. Does that make sense? Such a question is only possible because we believe we can put God in the dock, as C.S. Lewis said, put God on trial and say, oh, okay, well, you tell me this. When even the answer in the ancient story of Job is God reverses the who's questioning who Job, Job spends, what, 30-some chapters questioning God, and God finally speaks, and says, Hey, Job, i got a few questions for you. Where were you when I made this, when I did this, when I did that? In fact, do you know all the things Yahweh says to Job? He talks about the, the, the tides of the ocean. He talks about Leviathan. He talks about these strange beasts. I can't help but think what the writer of Job is trying to show us is that there is a wildness to the world and even a wildness to its creator, that is beyond our comprehension. And I can't help but then think of that phrase in the Chronicles of Narnia. Is he <laughs> a good line? Is he safe? He's good. He's not safe. God is not this domesticated concept, the God that we can whittle down with apologetics and say, he started the he created the world, he did the, and we've got this boxed up God. And I, I, frankly, when people reject that God, I say, bravo, I reject that God too. The God that we worship is the God who created a world that has a certain wildness to it that is beyond our full comprehension because this God himself is over and above. But you know, to focus on all of those questions is really to miss the beauty of the story of Job. Did you know that there was an old Babylonian myth of a man who suffered and the Babylonian god Marduk eventually restores what this person lost? It's often referred to in Christian commentaries as the Babylonian Job because there's this Babylonian story. And we don't know whose story came first, the Babylonian's or the Hebrew's story. But when you parallel the two stories, an interesting difference surfaces. In the Babylonian story of their Job, quote-unquote, Marduk, their god, stays silent. Yeah, he gives him all his stuff back, but Marduk never speaks. Do you know what Yahweh does? Yahweh speaks. Yahweh sees a hurting Job and comes near and speaks. And I can't help but think that the speaking God is a foreshadow of the Word who became flesh and dwelt among us. That God's response to our suffering is ultimately not an explanation, but the Incarnation. That God came and took on flesh and dwelt among us and said, let me suffer with you. John 1 and John 11 are incredibly important to my theology of suffering because the word becomes flesh, John 1, John 11, Jesus weeps and sits in this pain with us. But then it moves on, doesn't it? Jesus doesn't just weep with us on the cross. He defeats and destroys the work of the enemy. He destroys the sting of death. He destroys evil in this world. He judges the works of the enemy. That's also what John says. And then for me, 1 Corinthians 15, when Paul says, one day when Christ returns, on that day he will reign until all the enemies are put under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is for now, death still feels like a bully, but in the end, death will itself lose. Death will die. And in the end, there is resurrection. So God's answer to this is much richer than an explanation. Uh, Dr. Stephen Todd, in a couple of weeks, is going to preach a little more on this and share some of his own stories of seeing pain and suffering in this world, and I hope that that will continue to be helpful as you you meditate on this. The next category uh, question that came in was about healing. And the question is this. Some preach that Jesus died for everything, sickness, finances, etc., and that all of his perfect kingdom is available now. Now, the words I'm emphasizing are the words that are in all caps, so I'm presuming he's shouting this at me in the email, so I'm... (laughs) And then he says, of course, people die, people get cancer and are not healed. Businesses break apart, homes are short-sold. Even if you have the most faithful prayer warrior at your side and you believe God wants to heal you, you could still die. Some of this is a mystery and can't be explained totally, but there are verses that point to now but not yet. If you can describe your view from Scripture on this and why bad things happen to good people um, and relieve those who pray for others that it is in God's hands, that would be awesome. Well, clearly I can't tackle all of that, but let me say a bit about this. There is a a group in the body of Christ who believe that because Jesus paid for it, we should be able to have it all now. And and no doubt some of you have been exposed to this, some of you may not have been, God bless you. Um, But others of you have encountered people, Christians that say, well, listen, you know, Jesus died for this, I I command all of it, prosperity, healing, blessing, you, you name it, I've got it. And they often point to the scriptures in the New Testament that Jesus healed and, and, and all this stuff. So let's start with healing in the New Testament. First of all, healing in the New Testament didn't happen for everyone. It didn't. And, and you have to remember that the stories that are being written down in the Gospels and in Acts are the stories for the ones that it did happen to. And they are told as remarkable precisely because they are remarkable, not normative. Okay, so, so if you, if you read closely in the Gospels, you'll see where it says, many who were sick came to Jesus and he healed them all. That's true, but that was one region on one day. What about the others who were around? Or you read a story of, of a certain individual, the centurion or, 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 or um, uh, the, the little girl who had fallen asleep. And you think of Jesus healing them, but, but were they the only ones sick that day in that region? No. And again, when you read the book of Acts, there, there are some Christians who want to give the impression that, well, there was just healings all the time in the book of Acts. Actually, the book of Acts takes place in how many different cities? Jerusalem, Antioch, Ephesus, three different cities, maybe more, right? Um, uh, actually, I think there's at least one or two more. And it takes place over the span of a number of years, possibly like 30 years. So now when you do the math and you start averaging out, you're like, well, that's maybe one miracle per city every five years. Well, that sounds about right. So all of a sudden, we're, we're, we're realizing, okay, so this isn't everyone. But not only is it not everyone, healing in the New Testament wasn't final. It wasn't the absolute and total healing. What do I mean by this? What's the greatest healing miracle that the gospel writers tell us? It's Lazarus. Now, to be clear, Lazarus does, is not resurrected the way Jesus was resurrected, right? Because the gospel writers tell us that Jesus was raised from the dead and given a new body, like a new kind of body, like his body was reconstituted, so it still had scars, but he could walk through walls, locked doors, and you're like, right? This was different than La- Lazarus. It's better, it's more accurate to say, not that Lazarus was resurrected, it's more accurate to say Lazarus was resuscitated. He was brought back to life, but in his same body, okay? In other words, Lazarus was brought back from the dead to die again someday, okay? So, it's not, it didn't happen for everyone, nor did it happen in its finality or totality. So, what is it, Glenn? What is healing in the New Testament? You know what the gospel writers call it most often? They call it a sign. It's a sign. These signs shall follow those who believe. This is a sign that the kingdom, in fact, many of the gospel writers, particularly Matthew, has these specific miracles to show that Jesus is. The 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 one who's bringing the kingdom of God, that the reign of God, the rule of God is arriving, is breaking into the world. And look, there are signs of it here and now. I love the illustration that C.S. Lewis gives about if you live by a train station, every time a train begins arriving, you feel it shake. Anyone grow up, you know, near, you know, you think of it whenever you're overseas and they have, you know, more trains than we do here in the States. But something arriving makes everything around it tremble. And the signs of healing are signs that Jesus is bringing the reign of God. The whole earth quakes with excitement. Look, there's a miracle. There's a miracle. There's healing. It's coming. One day, everything will be restored. But today, we get little signs of it, little things that make us tremble. So how ought we to pray? I think we ought to pray as those who ask, because we've been told to ask. Maybe the most tragic thing we could do is to stop asking because we no longer believe we are heard or that we are loved. I think we have to keep praying. We've been told to ask. So one of the reasons we pray for healing is out of obedience, but also out of trust in the Lord's love, to say, Lord, I trust that you are the God who heals, and I trust that you're the God that one day will restore it all. And so what we're asking for, God, is a sign in advance of that, right here, right now. You see, that, that's so much healthier than saying, oh God, I demand the miracle now. It reminds me of like, you know, let's say hypothetically, if I bought one of my children a bike for Christmas, and, and let's say they found it in the garage, and they're like, dad, you paid for a bike for us. I'm like, <laughs> Busted! Yep, bought you a bike. It's for Christmas. are like, well, Dad, I receive that bike right now. <laughs> like, well, but, but uh, I mean, I, it's for Christmas. And you're like, but, Dad, I am your child, and I am called by your name. So in the name of Pacium, I receive my bike, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Sorry, Sven, I'm not like, killing this mic here. So, well, I, I, it's true. I, I did pay for it, and it is true. You are called by my name. That bike is yours. Yeah, Amen, Dad. I receive my bike. Like what? Well, but, but it's not Christmas. Okay, now it's an imperfect analogy because there's no signs in advance of the bike. Maybe I give him a helmet or something, you know, in advance. But, <laughs> but, but, but you get the picture. We live in between the now and the not yet. The clearest scriptural picture of this is. Going back to John himself. So John is the gospel writer that on the cross has Jesus say, what? It is finished. And some Christians love to quote that. It is finished. It is finished. It's true. But you know, John is the same guy who later records a vision of Jesus when he's on the island of Patmos. John is. And he has this vision of Jesus at the very end. And Jesus appears. And he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. Behold, I'm making all things new. And then he says, it is done. Oh, he does? Right. So there's an it is finished, and there's an it is done. And actually, the the implication is there's a completion, and there's a coming to pass. And we live, if you don't like the phrase now and not yet, well, it's not in the Bible, sure, we live in between the it is finished and the it is done. We live in between the completion and the coming to pass. Okay, deep breath. So far, so good, everybody? Third question, or fourth, fourth question, the third header here, homosexuality. There's a whole homosexual movement, the question says, that claim to be Christians and yet live the gay lifestyle openly and unashamed. The Bible clearly says that homosexuals will not inherit the kingdom of God. What is your take on this? I think it's important, first of all, to say what we mean. So, to circle through a number of questions, the first question is, what do we mean when we say gay? Do you mean the attraction or do you mean the action? Because I think it's an important distinction. You say, well, to be gay is to have same-sex attractions. Okay, let's talk about that. And someone says, no, to be gay is to act on it. It's action, not just attraction." I think if we were to distill it down, if we just say, "Okay, but well, let's start with the attraction." Let's say that a person says, "I'm gay," and what they mean is, "I struggle with same-sex attraction. I have this." Then the question is, can a Christian be gay in that sense? <laughs> and the answer is yes. Yes, a person can be a Christian and have the sense of saying, "I'm. I, I don't know where this came from, but I have." These feelings, I'm struggling with same-sex attraction. And I know a lot of times we'll say, well, yeah, wait a minute, wait a minute. You're telling me that God made that person? Listen, is the world the way that God made it in the book of Genesis? It's not. There's brokenness all around us, people. There's evidence of it in our own hearts. There's evidence of it in our world. That Christians don't just believe in creation. We believe in a fall. However we say that, whether it's total depravity or whether it's, uh, a bentness in our, in our image, in the image of God in us, that's there. So, could it be that there is brokenness in us even from uh, birth? Yeah. Actually, as Christians, we of all people should not be afraid of saying that because that's what we say about all of us. For all have sinned. Everything in, in, in each of us, there is a deep brokenness that, that is the result of the fall. And in that sense, there need not be this deep shame for struggling with those attractions. I think I want to say that because sometimes we say, well, there's no shame. You know, as Christians, we say, well, there's no shame in being tempted about pornography. There's no shame in this. There's no shame in that. But then when it comes to someone who says, I'm struggling with same-sex attraction, you say, oh, well, there's all kinds of shame with that, you. But if there's no shame in the brokenness that, is in your heart, why is there a fundamental... Does God look at a person who's struggling with same-sex attraction and think... Or does he see a dearly loved person who's, got the, who's, who's wrestling against a deep kind of brokenness? I think it's important to, to, to say this up front because we want to lump it all in one bag. Oh, well, those people, those people. One of the best things you and I could do is to truly listen to someone who identifies as being gay. Truly listen. There are a number of sins that, <laughs> that all of us have sort of, we're not as shocked by because we know people who've lived through this or lived through that. Someone's, you know, had an affair or someone's done this and we're, oh, I, I can, you know, have compassion because you know them. It's very easy to distance people with this issue because you don't know anybody, and you've never sat, sat down and actually begun to listen to them. The story that has hit me um, over this last week is she's a friend but more of an acquaintance. We've, we've met at a couple of things, but her name is Vicki Beeching, and some of you maybe read Vicky's story. She's British. Um, she... Uh, had her undergrad in theology at Oxford, came over to the States, was raised in a charismatic, very conservative uh, Christian home, came over to the States as a worship artist, worship leader. That's how I I met her. And she was a songwriter, had a couple of really big songs. And um, just last week when she turned 35, she uh, announced that she's gay. And for her, the implications meant no holes barred. This is not something to, to wrestle against. This is is something to fully embrace, but the part of her story that really moved me was the pain that she talked about this with. She talked about at 12, all of a sudden discovering that she felt this way. She didn't mention any kind of abuse or occasion that, that precipitated that. She talked about at 13, seeking out a Catholic priest to confess to because she didn't know who else to talk to about this, and she confessed and just felt shame over her life. She talked about as a conservative Christian going to youth camp and having people try to cast out the demon of homosexuality from her and the incredible pain that that resulted in. And then finally she described coming to the States and leading worship at some of these events that were pro-marriage rallies that made her feel less than human. And she one day got so sick... She went to the hospital, and they said, you've got an autoimmune disease. It was turning skin on her into, into scar tissue. It was very strange, autoimmune disease, she, uh, chemotherapy. She ended up flying back to the UK, and the doctors said, there's only one reason this autoimmune disease happens, and it's someone who's living with incredible pain or trauma. And she knew immediately it was the pain of hiding her struggle with, this, with sexuality. And so she decided as she lay in the hospital with chemo tubes connected to her that she was going to, going to, by the time she turned 35, she was going to be honest with herself, with her parents, with the world about this. Now you, you and I may rightly disagree with Vicki's conclusions, but we cannot ignore the pain of that story. It's important for us to listen closely, to understand... How this is, not, we can say. Well, we all have brokenness. We all have suffering. That's true. But you know, sexuality is so closely connected to our identity that it's not simply a matter of saying you're tempted to do these things. It's a way of saying I am this way. So what do I do with that? Now, the particular biblical text, First Corinthians six. This was the passage that was quoted, verse nine. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. This flow in 1 Corinthians 6 is not Paul talking about people who are Christians and then reverting back. This is Paul saying, this is The flow of people who were living this way and have now been brought into the kingdom but haven't yet learned what the kingdom implications are. In other words, this isn't a random list of people, bad people who are going to hell. Paul's not just saying, hey, in case you want to know all the bad, vile, sick, immoral people that are going to hell, here's a list for you. He's not, that's not what this is. What this is, is Paul saying, listen. I know what you've come out of. I know the the, the premise that you used to live under. And then verse 11 is the key. He says, and such were some of you. Such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. He's saying, listen, this is what you were, but let me tell you what you are you're washed, you're justified, you're clean. And then the question that we want to know is, okay, so Paul, so now what? What's the very next chapter after 1 Corinthians 6? Hint, 1 Corinthians 7. (laughs) Okay, what is 1 Corinthians 7 about? It's about the beauty of marriage between a husband and a wife and the gift of singleness, the gift of celibacy. Now I've said this when we taught this text in our Corinthians series, part of the struggle for us as, as evangelical Christians is we have not properly dignified the gift of celibacy. And so for someone who says, so imagine a person who's hearing Paul's words and they've come out of a homosexual lifestyle and Paul says, look, this is what you were, but you are now washed. And then he says, and let me now tell you about the beauty of how God made marriage to be. And let me also tell you about the beauty of celibacy and singleness. This isn't Paul trying to, quote unquote, ungay someone. This isn't Paul trying to say, Look, I've got some reparation therapy for you and I can make you a happy husband. No, this isn't Paul saying, this is Paul saying, you know what, there are two gifts God gives us with regard to intimacy and sexuality. One is the gift of marriage, the other is the gift of celibacy. And both have incredible dignity to it. One of the, one of the people that I, I'm really paying attention to is a, is a guy named Wesley Hill, who is a New Testament professor, who refuses to reinterpret the New Testament text. In other words, he believes that you can't act on these attractions, you can't live this way, and yet he himself identifies as being gay. And of course, what he means is that he has this attraction, and that is how his his um, um, uh, identity is. And Wesley has this. Um, his first book was called *Washed and Waiting*. I haven't read the read it, but the title says a lot, doesn't it? Because he's borrowing from 1 Corinthians. That is what you were, but now you are washed. Why waiting? Well, what else does 1 Corinthians say? So 1 Corinthians 6, he says, this is what you were. You are now washed. 1 Corinthians 7, these are the gifts available to you in this life. But we're all waiting for 1 Corinthians 15, where we get given whole bodies. See, maybe the church... We've not only not dignified singleness and celibacy, but we've also not pointed people to the right hope. We've said the hope is heaven where you'll be a sort of a floating spirit somewhere and you won't even need intimacy. That's not what Paul says. Paul says the hope is a body and spirit and soul that are fully integrated and whole. And so we are all washed and waiting. I'm waiting to be whole. Wesley is waiting to be whole. We're all waiting to be whole. And that's the big picture of what Paul's moving toward in 1 Corinthians. Wesley's second book that's about to come out is called Spiritual Friendship. That's another thing that we've not talked enough about, the idea of spiritual friendship, that we don't have to sexualize everything, that the moment you feel the beauty and the warmth of friendship, you think, ooh, maybe this is sexual. And this is, this is the thing that I think is the most dangerous message of telling young children or young people that, oh, well, maybe, do you like boys or do you like girls? I think the most misleading thing about that is it, is it sexualizes all feelings of intimacy. That actually the scripture gives us a more robust picture of relationships. That there's all kinds of friendship. There's Jonathan and David whose love was, was sweeter for each other because of their friendship than even the love of a woman, David said. And, and you certainly know David didn't have a problem being sexual with women. From his later years. Okay, so so this is this is talking about a gift of intimacy and friendship that is not sexualized. Does that make sense? And and as as much as our culture is pretending to be so open minded, it's actually narrowing the boxes. It's saying you must be this, or you must be. Oh, I bet you're this. When it is, it is Christianity that says, you know what, there's a richness of friendship and intimacy that is not even yet in the, the, the category of sexual, sexuality. Does that make sense? Celibacy and spiritual friendship, these are gifts that we as Christians must speak more about, not just, oh, we are pro-marriage. I get it. I'm pro-marriage too. But you know what? Sometimes our words end up making other people feel ashamed of who they are. Instead of saying, you know who you are, you are washed, and you are waiting. I am washed. I am waiting. And there's the gift of celibacy, and there's a gift of spiritual friendship. Now, some of you wanting to know, well, how, how in the world do Christians who affirm a gay lifestyle, how are they interpreting the New Testament? I'll give you it in brief. I don't have time to go into it fully, but one of the main points in their argument is that homosexuality in the Bible didn't have anything to do with a, a committed, monogamous, lifelong, mutual relationship. That, that homosexuality in the Bible was always about prostitutes and exploitation. Or, um, to, I'm, I'm not trying to be crude, but a, a group orgy sort of thing. And they referenced the, um, the, um, the thing that happens in Sodom in the Old Testament and then the New Testament. And so the argument goes something like this. Paul could not have imagined mutual, loving, monogamous homosexual relationships. He could not have imagined it, and therefore the New Testament is not really condemning that. The trouble with this is, actually, there was one very prominent example of a committed homosexual relationship, and it was with the emperor himself. Emperor Nero twice married a boy. One was actually a young man who was a, a free man, not a slave. And when Nero married this young, this, this young man, this guy's name was Pythagoras, but not the mathematician guy. <laughs> it's all kinds of, you know, Pythagoras' theorem is really about, no, 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 not that guy, just different. <laughs> yeah, so you can, I'll see it on Facebook today, you know. But Nero actually took the role of, of, of the wife in that wedding ceremony. They had a formal ceremony and all that. This has happened around A.D. 64, which admittedly is after, most people think, when 1 Corinthians was written, but it's not after when all of the New Testament is written. There's plenty more books to be written in the New Testament around A.D. 64 and after. What am I saying? I'm saying if, the New Testament, if we think the New Testament writers could not imagine a committed monogamous homosexual relationship, I don't think that's true. They did. Secondly, Paul had every opportunity and possibly even incentive to just give one little hint about how this was an an alternative for Christians to be in a committed, loving, monogamous, gay relationship, but he does not. In every one of Paul's household codes, he uses male and female, husbands and wives. In every one of his examples, he does. If he wanted to gain just a little bit more popularity, help grow the church just a little bit faster in Corinth, he could have used one example. Now, what is often said is, oh yeah, well, you know what, Paul was a bigot and he was anti-woman and he was, anti- he was pro-slavery and all that. Actually, th- that's not true because you can see one example amazing example of Paul undermining the system of slavery. What is that? His letter to Philemon. Has anyone read the letter to Philemon recently? Okay. Paul writes to Philemon, he says, you have a runaway slave named Onesimus. Now under Roman law, under this whole systematic infrastructure of injustice and racism, Paul couldn't undo the empire's system. But he subverts it by what he tells Philemon. What does he tell Philemon? He says, Onesimus is your runaway slave, and I urge you, when he comes back, you welcome him like a brother, because that's what he is in Christ. Paul is saying the explosive nature of the gospel is it will undermine this injustice of slaves. So you see that there. He does no such thing for homosexual relationships. He doesn't. What about women? How come? I mean, isn't the Bible misogyny? Listen, the most explosive thing Paul said about marriage was not women submit to your husbands. Everybody said that. All the Roman writers who wrote their own household codes, everybody said that. The most explosive thing Paul said was husbands love your wives. Lay down your lives for them as Christ laid down his for the church. That is radical. I think we're paying attention to the wrong emphasis In these texts, the fact that the gospel writers take the time to record that the first eyewitnesses to the resurrection, and by the way, being an eyewitness to the resurrection was the early criteria for being an apostle, the first eyewitnesses were women. The New Testament does all kinds of things to undermine a culture that pushed down women and oppressed slaves. If Paul wasn't afraid to be countercultural about those issues, he also wasn't afraid to say. But with regard to, hom- to stay to stay affirming a picture of male and female when it comes to marriage, so we don't have wiggle room with this. Finally, the overarching theme of Scripture works with opposites, works with male and female. From Genesis all the way to Revelation, you see bride and bridegroom. You see these things coming together. Ephesians 1.10, I, I love how N.T. Wright talks about Ephesians 1.10 being the thesis statement for Paul's letter to, to the church in Ephesus, because Ephesians 1.10 says, all things in heaven and on earth will be brought together, summed up in Christ Jesus, and then he proceeds to show how Jews and Gentiles are summed up, brought together in Christ Jesus, male and female, all of this stuff. He brings all, all of these things, heaven and earth, brings them all back together, and it anticipates what John will see in his revelation, that everything's being brought together, the opposites being brought together. So there's an overarching theme with Scripture that we can't undo. So what does this mean about our disagreement? Maybe the, the more, question, uh, more pressing question is, okay, so Glenn, isn't this just like a disagreement between Christians about any issue? I mean, don't Christians disagree about eschatology and baptism, so why can't we agree to disagree about this one? I think that this issue is not simply like those other disagreements, because of one specific thing. It's not a difference of interpretation of Scripture. It's a difference in posture towards Scripture. What do I mean by that? In so many of these other questions, we stand under the authority of the Word of God, and we say, okay, let's talk about baptism. Let's wrestle with this. Let's talk about eschatology. Let's wrestle. With this, let's, let's talk about these issues. But we're standing under the authority of Scripture, But when it comes to this issue, because there's so much argument being made over and against what is said in the text, it's really a standing above Scripture. In fact, the most honest thing I heard um, a Christian who affirms this say is, I know that Paul says this, but we know more about human sexuality than Paul did. Now that may trouble you, as it should, but at least it's honest. Because that's that's saying, this is not a disagreement about Scripture, this is a difference in posture toward Scripture. One stands under, one stands over. So, finally, what does it mean? Does it mean they're going to hell? I've got good news for you. You don't have to decide that. And neither do I. Tim Keller responded this way, he said, homosexuality doesn't send you to hell any more than heterosexuality gets you into heaven. (laughs) It has been and will always be about lordship. And as far as who's really, who really means that Jesus is Lord? As Billy Graham said, the Holy Spirit's job is to convict, God's job is to judge, you and me, we're called to Love. So if someone's walking through the journey, all I have to say is the story's not over yet. It's not my place to say, you're going hell. I can rest that upon the shoulders of the only one who is perfectly just and perfectly merciful and perfectly good, and his name is Jesus, our Savior. Amen? We're getting ready to come to the table this morning, and I'm struck by this thought. That at Jesus' table was Thomas, the one who would doubt. At Jesus' table was Peter, the one who would deny. At Jesus' table was Judas, the one who would betray. At Jesus' table was James and John, who only saw power and ambition in their eyes. And yet Jesus welcomed them at his table. I'm convinced, church, that there's a seat for you at Jesus' table. If you want to follow Jesus, there's a seat for you. So I don't know, Glenn, I have so many more questions that I've got doubt. I don't really know. Thomas was there. So I don't know, Glenn, I've just been unfaithful. Been... Peter was there. But I just, I'm so selfish, and I just, it... James and John were there. And if they were there at Jesus' table, church, there's a seat for you. There's a seat for me.